Some of us uh, this week are heading off to the FIC conference in Blackpool uh, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. We're heading out after church this evening. And um, John Stevens, who's the national director of the FIC, um, I, I think he's pretty well connected to various uh, networks of different kinds of Christians going on across the UK. He, he's pretty plugged in. And he summed up the temperature uh, by, by suggesting this to me. He, he, th- this is an interesting statistic. He suggests that the average number of people becoming Christians in a local church like this one each year works out at around 1%. So, in, in other words, if a church has 100 members you would expect that church to see one person come to faith in Jesus each year. If you, had, if you were a church of 50 people, you'd expect one person to come to faith every two years. You, you understand the maths of that. When, I, when he first told me that, my first thought was, people in our churches are gradually going to be dying at a quicker rate than that. I'm not being rude. <laughs> But um, that, that, that's not a high rate, is it? And anyway, you, you, another way you can sense the decline is, is in this fact. I don't want to romanticize the past, but I think it's fair to say that maybe 50 years ago, you, you could gain social brownie points by attending a church. You, you would be thought well off, and you would be thought as, to be a good citizen if you went to your local church. Then again, maybe 20, 25 years ago, it was more likely for Christians to be seen largely as harmless and irrelevant. But now, I I think you would agree with me, that there's a growing number of people within our society who view Christianity as dangerous and evil. It's not just embarrassing to admit that you're a follower of Jesus or you might be connected to a church. Some of you who are younger in our congregation may even hear friends in school say to you, you're not one of those nasty Christians, are you, who believe X, Y, and Z? Sometimes Christian leaders, I think, can respond to this Maybe understandably, they want to cheer their people up. <laughs> and maybe some Christian leaders respond to this by saying to people, God is on the move. Revival is coming. The tide is turning. But of course, it's hard for them to clean up the mess afterwards if and when that doesn't seem to happen. And people are bewildered. And a little crushed by disappointment and wonder, what on earth is God doing? Now, uh, we're not going to be miserable all afternoon, but I'm not at all suggesting that we should give up or lose hope. Of course, God can and often has transformed whole cultures and societies. And we should pray fervently for that to be the case. But we must also not be 
blind or naive to the reality that is all around us. These are hard times. The truth is that actually the church has, has always been different to the culture that it's in. This was true when the New Testament was written. It's been true uh, with a very unfriendly Roman Empire. Um, it's been true throughout history. Jesus himself even said to his own very dear friends, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Imagine that. I heard one minister comment on that verse, isn't it a miracle that when we do that, some of the wolves become sheep? Which is a great encouragement, isn't it? So my question today is, how do we as a church live faithfully in the dark times? And I think we can learn a lot here from how Joseph as an individual responded to things being relatively bleak so I want to say three things and hopefully this is a little blueprint for us as a church as a church family to think about when we face times that seem perplexing and difficult and hard or dark number one I think uh, Joseph displays here a remarkable humble diligence even though things were very hard. I think one of the striking things, the first thing to notice here, is that Joseph does not succumb to bitterness or frustration. I, I'm sure you'll agree that this whole experience must surely have been so disorientating for him. But as he processes it all and he tries to somehow regain his balance, it seems to me that he decided in his heart that wherever he landed and whatever happened, he would just do his best. Wherever he found himself, he would do his best. I don't know, maybe he quietly came to this conclusion on the journey from his home to Egypt, it was a few hundred miles, maybe as he's quietly thinking about what he's going to do when he gets there, he decides, whatever happens, I'm going to do my best. But when he gets there, of course, he has, he, he has in one ear, one ear, God's glorious promise to him, and in the other ear, he's got Potiphar at telling him to clean the toilets. And feed the animals. I, 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 I didn't know what to call this heading because it, this is a blend, isn't it, of patience, of humility, of diligence. It's all of those things at the same time. And I want you to notice how many times the narrator underlines here that God was with him in this. In fact, verse 2 is the first time that God is mentioned in a couple of chapters. Finally, God shows up. Look at what it says in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Isn't that an encouragement? In a hard time, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. Stay again in verse 3. 
The Lord gave him success in everything he did. It's there again in verse 5. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and the field. And remember too, that his new boss was a pagan man. He's not a believer in God. Joseph here is only 17 years old. Some of our kids have gone off to university some of our young people are going to go off to university maybe at some point. Joseph himself, at the age of 17, here finds himself far away from home in a potentially hostile environment with a pagan boss. And in his case, it's all so unfair. But he doesn't react here by giving up or getting bitter about his horrible brothers or his awful new boss. Joseph has no idea what's going on, but with God's help, he knuckles down and he does his best. No one even really knew where he was. I'm reminded a little of Jesus himself in this. You you may know that Jesus was 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Before that, he was a nobody in a backwater village called Nazareth, probably working in his dad's carpentry shop for years. The son of God making tables and tools and no one knew who he was. Here's the thing, we live in a world don't we now where everything has to be instant or on instagram isn't that true we crave excitement and affirmation and progress we want i think and even need people to know that we're happy and competent and cool we cope very badly if we feel that other people are somehow looking down on us. But here's a little window into a completely different attitude. And this speaks more about patience and humility and and just the dignity of quiet, unseen, hard work. Even when all of that is unrecognised by everyone and anyone except God... Nothing done with God or for God is ever a waste. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, if you're making notes in the New Testament, Paul speaks of Christian believers having an audience of one. Think about that, an audience of one. This is what he says, whatever you do, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. An audience of one. The early Christians in the Roman Empire 
did not turn the world upside down by being militant or awkward. They loved Jesus and they strove to be the best possible citizens they could be. They were different and they faced brutal persecution at times. And it took 300 years for their quiet, humble, loving diligence to conquer the Roman Empire. Didn't happen in five minutes, three, three centuries. Slow, steady, patient, humble diligence. So there's a first thing to notice. For the church, when times are hard, humble diligence. That's Joseph seems to have decided, that's what I'm going to do. But there's another thing here that Joseph commends to us, and that is that we also need purity and holiness in our behaviour too. So secondly, true integrity when temptation is strong. I think one of the great challenges when things are hard is the pull to give in and to compromise and to go with the flow. It's huge, isn't it? And I think that was certainly the case for Joseph here too. The narrator tells us in verse 7, quite an unusual verse, not, not many times in the Bible people are described as being handsome. But the narrator tells in verse 7 that Joseph was well-built and handsome. And he catches the attention of Potiphar's wife. And it seems that the pressure on Joseph was absolutely relentless. In verse 10, we're told that she spoke to him day after day. Relentless. No one could see him. Joseph at this point is far away from the family he belongs to that God has made promises to, the family of covenant. And not, on, not only is life hard for him, but who's going to find out if he enjoys a little secret pleasure? It would have been so easy for him to give in. And given what he suffered, a little pleasure along the way is surely understandable. Joseph might even think he deserves a little bit of some, some comfort. It wouldn't do his job prospects any harm. And there's no way Potiphar's wife is going to tell Potiphar Day after day this goes on, times are hard, the opportunity is there, and the pull to give in is immense. Joseph's response is very striking. I wonder if you noticed it when we read it a few moments ago. In verse 8, he gives a passionate little speech, doesn't he, to Potiphar's wife? And he says, with me in charge, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. 
My master has, has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. And then Joseph says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against? Whose name do you expect to come next? Potiphar. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against? And yet Joseph says, first and foremost, this would be a sin against God. An audience of one, again. The reason he refuses to compromise is because he is already all in with God. And Joseph knew, actually, that in the end, all of our sin, actually, is first of all against God. Even though it is also often, tragically, also against other people, it is first and foremost against him. It's perhaps good for us to pause and just reflect a little here on the nature of temptation. Uh, we understand, don't we, the difference between the carrot and the stick approach to trying to get other people to do what we want them to do, don't we? You understand the difference between the carrot and the stick. The idea is that some people respond to threats, while others, uh, probably most people, respond better to encouragement, don't we? The carrot and the stick. Think about Jesus himself being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, in the Gospels. There was no stick. It's all carrot. The devil didn't try to scare Jesus or intimidate him or threaten him. The devil came to him with this kind of fake generosity, offering him stuff. We, we do know that the powers of evil are horrible and dark. But the truth is that actually we are more often caught by the promise of pleasure than the threat of pain. So often temptation presents itself not as sinister, but as seductive. There's the promise of something lovely and incredible that will solve all our problems and give us the comfort and peace that we yearn for. But no one ever catches a fish by showing them the hook. <laughs> what the fisherman does is put a great big fat juicy worm on the hook because apparently that looks delicious to a fish but as a hook hidden inside. Temptation comes to us and it, this will help me to feel loved and good and desired and affirmed. How can that be wrong? And it's even more attractive when life is hard or unfair as it was for Joseph here. But the lie in the middle of all of that is that somehow God is stingy and mean 
and boring and restrictive. Isn't this exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden? Think about this for a moment. it, It is an absolute scandal, isn't it? That Satan slithers along and slanders the God who is truly good while pretending to be generous himself. Insinuating that God would only make you miserable while he can give you more happiness than God ever would. And his real desire is not to help you but to ruin you. Potiphar's wife, of course, here is real. But I I think in this chapter, as the Bible portrays this story, she almost becomes a metaphor for the relentless, enticing appeal of this world that generously promises us all kinds of things while hiding the tragic cost. Maybe you've come here today and you're tempted to forsake Jesus and you're feeling the pull towards Egypt what relentless whispers are you hearing that are telling you that happiness is found somewhere over here and encouraging you to take steps away from him In this particular case, it's sexual sin, isn't it? So many lives are ruined. So many marriages and families are broken. So many ministries and churches are shipwrecked by sexual sin in particular. The promise of intimacy and excitement and attention is sweet, but the aftertaste is bitter and sour what does Joseph do at the end of verse 12 the day comes where he just legs it (laughs) he runs it's a good picture isn't it the time for conversation has passed this is not the time to overthink things or get all sophisticated This is not the time for tiptoeing around the edges or hesitating because the other person might be offended. The time has come for Joseph simply to get out of there. And I think the implication here, I I don't want to over-spiritualise, the implication here is not just that he flees out of the room. I think the implication is surely that he flees towards God. And we too can flee to the only one who can help us. And the one who knows what this kind of relentless pressure feels like. Think about this parallel. I want to suggest that in a sense Jesus comes down from heaven into this world. Jesus living in this world 
is not unlike Joseph living in exile in Egypt, a foreign country, and the relentless pressure on the shoulders of Jesus was indescribable. If we fail, there are tragic consequences. But if Jesus slips up even once, the gospel is ruined, salvation is destroyed, humanity is lost. Jesus had to be perfect. Otherwise, he can't be our saviour. What was it like for Jesus every single day living in this Egypt and never once caving in? I want to show you a verse in the book of Hebrews. It's in chapter 4. And um, I've put it on the screen here for us. Sorry about the small print. But it, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 and 16 says this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach his throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The reason we can run to Jesus is because he is both bulletproof and kind. Isn't that amazing? He never fell. And he is tender-hearted to those who are affected by the same relentless pressure that he experienced and overcame. So, like Joseph... When times are hard, we are called both to humility and to holiness, patience and purity. I want you to notice before we leave this chapter that Joseph pays a heavy price though, doesn't he? For doing the right thing. It's all so devastating, isn't it, for poor Joseph. I wonder whether Joseph thought things were on the up. His brothers had thrown him into a pit Stolen his coat. Potiphar promotes him. Maybe Joseph thought, finally, God's promises are coming true. And then he loses another coat and ends up back in the pit. How disappointing it is when you do your best and you don't get what you deserve or you're misunderstood. It's horrible, isn't it? And yet, Joseph maintains his humble integrity even in prison. Look at verse 20. While Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. 
There was one commentator I came across, and he said this, wherever Joseph found himself, he made his environment better. <laughs> Isn't that a remarkable testimony to God's kindness and grace when times were hard? Wherever he went, he made it better. <laughs> well, a third ingredient of Joseph's life was solid confidence that God's promises would, in fact, work out. So we come now to the cupbearer and the baker who Joseph meets in chapter 40. Now, the, these are senior positions in the royal palace. The cupbearer will have been the guy who had to taste the wine before the king drank it in case it was poisoned. So he's taking his life in his hands every time he does his job. And the baker, obviously, very important roles in the royal palace. But they've both done something wrong, and they've both been thrown into the same prison, and they each have a dream, which neither of them understands. And the dreams make us prick up our ears, because we've obviously heard about dreams. So I want to read chapter 40 with you. And we're going to read from verse 9, just to save a little bit of time. So let, let's uh, see what happens next. Verse 9 of chapter 40. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. And he said to him, In my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. And within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, Remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews and even here I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. The Hebrew word there is the word for pit, which is where his brothers put him. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favourable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. And this one's not as good. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head. And impale your body on a pole and the birds will eat away your flesh. That can't have been a good weekend for him, can it? Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday. He gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them, in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. 
I want us to realise what an encouragement this chapter must have been to Joseph. Why do I say that? Well, when Pharaoh later promotes Joseph to become prime minister, we're told that he's 30 years old. And how old was he when he first was sold off by his brothers? 17. I'm not that good at mental maths, but I think that means 17 years. Is that right? No, 13 years. I knew I was going to say it wrong. He was 17, 30. So 13 years. Remember, Joseph, we keep saying this, he's got God's promise and he knows where the story will end. But he's no idea what the journey is or how, how long it'll take to get there. So far, all Joseph's experience has been 13 disappointing years of going downhill. But now, Joseph sees two dreams come true in just three days. What that says to Joseph is that his dream is also going to come true. This is an encouragement that God keeps his promises. And he sees it happen quick to give him hope that his promise too will come true. Now Joseph interprets the cupbearer's dream as meaning that in three days he'll be forgiven and raised back to his old job. The baker's not so fortunate. His dream means that in three days he will die for his crimes. And it's obviously not great news for the baker, but it is an encouragement for Joseph, Joseph is being reminded here that he can believe God's promise to him because God keeps these other promises. His hope is kindled. It was already there, but it's kindled when he sees God keeping his revealed word. Just keep that thought in mind for a moment because like last week, there's, there's a lot more I think, buried here in this narrative. Does the three days remind you of anything else? Who's, who's, I heard a whisper. The ascension. Well, you, before you said the ascension, you said the resurrection. What else in the Bible happens after three days? Jesus rose again from the dead after three days. Now, in the New Testament, Paul writes to church in Corinth and he says something very interesting. He's trying to summarize the Christian gospel and he says this, 1 Corinthians 15, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. I get that because in the Old Testament, the death of Jesus is prophesied many times. But Paul goes on, he was also buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And I'm thinking to myself, where in the Old Testament does it say that the resurrection's alluded to many times, but I'm not aware that anywhere it says three days. What does Paul mean when he says according to the scriptures? Where does the Old Testament predict Jesus being raised on the third day? There's lots of places where the resurrection's foreshadowed. There's the story of Jonah, I suppose, and the great fish, which has three days embedded in it. And Jesus himself referred to this being a sign 
I wonder whether this is another brilliant little gem hidden away by God to point us to Jesus. The experience of the cupbearer was like a resurrection. After three days, he was restored to his old job, got his former life back, and yet the same three days meant total anguish for the baker. This three days meant joy for the one and despair for the other. But I want to suggest that the resurrection of Jesus also is a kind of dividing event, isn't it? God powerfully raised Jesus from the dead to vindicate him and also to show that the death of Jesus on the cross was an acceptable payment for our human sin. And so when Jesus rises from the dead, after three days, it meant great joy and forgiveness and life for his friends. But it meant destruction for his enemies. Jesus rose from the dead. His enemies thought they'd got rid of him. But he rises from the dead to gloriously save his friends and to justly punish his enemies. Joseph saw, condensed into three days, that God keeps both his promises and his warnings. And the three-day resurrection of Jesus encourages us too that all of God's future promises and warnings will come true too. We sang earlier, didn't we, of the shout of joy and the cry of anguish that will occur when Jesus returns one day. His friends will be glad and enter in to his everlasting life and his enemies will be devastated as they face God's judgment. The point here for Joseph was that God always keeps his word, both his promises and his warnings. And I, I, as we bring this up today, the question for us is, will we be like the cupbearer or the baker? Will Jesus' victory be the making of us or the undoing of us? I want to urge you this afternoon to trust in Jesus and be saved. Well, let's wrap up, shall we? In chapter 41, we're not going to spend another hour there, don't worry. Joseph finally makes it to the palace. After 13 years of humiliation in exile, Joseph is promoted by Pharaoh to a throne and Pharaoh even gives him A glorious new what? Coat. (laughs) It's all about coats, the story. A glorious new coat. When times were dark, Joseph had humility and integrity, but all of this was because he had hope in God's promise. One writer sums this up beautifully And I I can't do any better than this. This is a great phrase. The reason we can live in the pit is because we're on the way to the palace. Isn't that a beautiful summing up? The reason 
we can live in the pit is because we're on the way to the palace. And what had God planned for Joseph to do with his newfound glory and authority? His new royal job was to feed the people. And does that not too foreshadow Jesus? The greater Joseph, who went down, who lived in exile, who lost everything, even his life, and was then exalted to the highest throne to do what? To feed his people. In the darkest of times, may we too learn humility and integrity because we have such a blazing hope in Jesus. Even as we live in our Egypt right now, we can see that God has kept his loving promises in the death and resurrection of Jesus and that this same Jesus now reigns exalted to feed his people and to carry them home. You can live in the pit because you're on the way to the palace. Praise God. Let's pray. And then we're going to sing to close our time together. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you are reliable and trustworthy. And we thank you that every word that you have ever uttered is true and that all that you have promised and warned will come to pass. We thank you that we, we can see your promises being fulfilled in the past and that encourages us to trust you for the future. We pray that you would help us to learn from this wonderful story. Help us in our dark times to be humble, to be holy, and to be filled with hope. And we thank you that that is possible because of the greater Joseph, the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust in him and we pray that you would keep us safe in the pit through his great name we pray for his glory and for our good amen